Welcome to the first episode of The Global Gale. My name is Philip O'Connor and I'm hoping that this will be the first of many podcasts that I can share with you wherever you happen to be in the world. And when I say that, I'm not joking. I started this podcast because, as you may have seen in the video that I put out before it even started, I believe that there's no such thing as an ordinary Irish person abroad, right? Everyone has a story to tell. And I'm going to try to bring you as many of them as I can over the coming weeks and months and years. It doesn't matter if you were born and raised in Dublin or Cork, Dubai or Canberra. As long as your Irishness is something you cherish, this is the podcast for you. Now, I may well be the least remarkable of us, but I am one of those Irish people abroad. I've lived in Sweden for the last 23 years, and during that time working as a journalist, I've had the privilege of meeting Irish people all over the globe. But that's not to say that I know absolutely everybody. So first things first with this podcast, I'm going to be needing you to get in touch, right? Because you know far better than me where the best stories are to be found in Australia or in the UK or in the US or in Africa. So tip me off and I'll get in touch with people that you'd like me to interview on this podcast. Who might that be? It could be anyone, and I'm open to absolutely anything. Academics and business people and entrepreneurs and diplomats, you name it, I'm interested in talking to them, right? The other thing I need you to do is I need you to share the hell out of the podcast, lads, because that's the only way it's going to work in the long term. I'll have more details about that in a little while, but um, let's get the show on the road, shall we? This very first episode of The Global Gale features two interviews that illustrate two very different experiences of Irishness. Shortly, we'll hear from one of America's best-known sports writers about how he was barely aware of his Irish heritage until he went to college in Boston. But first, let's take a trip to the Middle East. The first time I met Marianne Bulger, she was the deputy head of mission at the Irish Embassy here in Sweden. Must have been maybe 10 years ago since she moved here. Since then, she's had a stint in a variety of roles at the Department of Foreign Affairs in Dublin before being moved on to Athens and now to her new post in Jordan as ambassador there. I caught up with her on our day off recently to talk to her about her background and what led her to a life in representing Ireland abroad. Speaker, Prime Minister, members of the Parliament... I'm grateful for your welcome and for that of uh, your countrymen. Marianne Bulger, I've been officially told not to call you Your Excellency, so I'm not going to do that, right? I just had to get it in there. Anyway, tell us, how are you settling into your new job there in Jordan? Are you based in Amman now, are you? Based in Amman. Hi, Phil, and lovely to see you again. Um, You know, based here in Amman, almost two months here um, in a few days' time, and um, getting on absolutely great, I have to say. I'm the ambassador for Jordan. I presented my credentials to um, His Majesty King Abdullah II very shortly after I arrived, which was just an amazing experience. So proud for the family um, to achieve this. Um, It's my first time to be an ambassador abroad. So um, it's really great. And and the work is uh, really great here. I'm really enjoying it. It's totally different to my last job, which was the head of human resources for the Department of Foreign Affairs. So completely different, but, but, but equally like challenging and enjoyable. Is it, I often wondered about those postings that you've got now, Maria, do you have any input to it? Or do you just get uh, an email that says, oh, by the way, you'll be going to Jordan now or that? Or did you have any way of preparing yourself? Is it, do you apply for the job to the head of human resources or do they just tell you, right, you're off? Yeah, I mean, I think when I listen to uh, colleagues who were retired now, there was a time where you just got a letter um, in an envelope and when you were abroad and you were being told where you were going. But that system has completely changed. And 
we're further refining, refining our posting system actually every year and um, we're hoping to make all our decisions um, back at HQ on all postings abroad by the end of the year, which is a big undertaking, but it gives colleagues then a lot of time then to prepare for their postings. So what happens is a list comes out and you put down your preferences, like a bit like a CAO form. So you fill out, you talk to your family, you do consultation in the background. Um, you know, I've, I've always called the colleagues who are there on the posting or maybe colleagues who have served there before to get a sense of what it's, what it's like in the country. Does it sound like, I'll you know, it'll it'll suit me, it'll suit my skills and abilities. And then you make an application. And for um, the head of mission posts, you do have to submit now a letter um, of, um, outlining why you think you'd be a good head of mission in a particular location. So um, that all goes into the mix. Um, at ambassadorial level, um, the decisions are made by the government. So they it's signed off by the cabinet. So that's where the decision is taken. For other, other postings, it's made by the management board in the department. So. Um, it's always a very exciting time for the department. There's always like high, uh, you know, excitement and anxiety um, around this time. And uh, it's always great when the postings do come out. There's always great chat around the department um, about who's going where and, and uh, who's going to be working together and, and things like that. There's a lot of great water cooler talk that goes on before yeah. and, and after that kind of thing. You know, it's it's an amazing like I've known you for probably 10 years now since you were posted here to Sweden first. And it's amazing to see that sort of journey, because I think who was the ambassador here when you were here? Was it? I'm trying to remember who it was. There were two, Jim Carroll and Orlo Hanrahan were the ambassadors while I was in, in Sweden. Yeah, and both of them would have been very experienced diplomats who'd been uh, ambassadors in different places for, for a, quite a long time beforehand, you know? And now all of a sudden, you're in your career where, not necessarily where they were then, but you're starting out down the same path. And it's fascinating to see. Could I ask you, Marianne, about the family? Because they've sort of traipsed around after you now to Stockholm and back to Dublin. And I think you had a little spell in Athens and now they're living in Jordan. I mean, what does the, the husband of the kids think of all this when you come home and go right we're up in sticks and we're moving to Jordan yeah so as you said I left um, Stockholm in 2015 went back to Dublin for just two two years yeah at that time went back went out to Athens for two years came back for three years and now I'm in a man so a lot of moving around I would say Phil but I suppose in, in a lot of ways we're used to it the kids are here now they've really settled well into the schools and and um you know, we really love it here. There's, it's very friendly here and very people are very warm. So it's been very easy to, to integrate here, I would say, here in Amman. Um, but yeah, it's been the same really in every posting though. And I think, um, I suppose I'm lucky because my, my husband, Stephen, is always up for the adventure. So, you know, when, when the list comes out, we sit down together and we, um, we look at, you know, what would our preferences be in terms of where we'd go and... Um, he's always he's he's always there uh, and actually you know at the moment just before we move uh, I would say he's probably generally the more positive one I start getting you know slightly cold feet worrying about the new job and he's like come on let's go for it and do it and look it's not without its challenges either Phil like moving children around a lot um, it, it, it gives them you know a window to the world I suppose but it also is a lot of change in very young lives so it's something that we are mindful of as parents and that we have to keep an eye on to be honest and we were back in Ireland for the last three years and I was hoping that like they'd they'd probably, you know, be back in Ireland, they'd be around their family a lot more. But that didn't actually happen because of COVID. So that oh, was um, that was a, a not great, I would say, from their perspective. They didn't get to see as much of Ireland and to see as much of their families as as, as I had planned when we did go back. So. Mm. 
Have you found, Marianne, because they were quite young when they were here in Sweden, but did they pick up any Swedish, any Greek? Will they be learning any Arabic during the time that you're spending there? Because you'll probably be there for a limited time, but at the same time, it's kind of part of the experience picking up a bit, a bit of the language if they can. Absolutely. And I think that's part of it. I mean, part of the reason why we do this job as diplomats, I think, is curiosity that we're curious about both, you know, countries and languages. And they um, they did. They all we all learned um, to some degree Swedish. Um, and, you know, as you know yourself in Sweden, they, they, they speak uh, perfect English. A lot of people there. So they speak better um, English than you and me most of the time. Yeah, yeah <laughs> I would say so, probably. And um, in Athens, then we did. They went. They, they did go to international school, so they, they but they did learn Greek. Um, but you do, unfortunately, you do lose it. Unless you keep yeah. it up, you do lose it. And now they are, are starting now um, Arabic here, uh, which is, is a challenging enough uh, language. But they'll get there, especially kids. Kids are great. They, um, they're mo- they can pick it up much easier than, than us adults. Yeah, it's amazing. Like, and you just see it when you see them playing. There's a, there's a kid. I teach um, martial arts here in Stockholm, and there's a kid who came. She lived nine years in New Zealand. She's from France. Doesn't speak any Swedish. But even in the four or five weeks since the start of term, she's picked up so many little things already. You know, and you kind of you forget how easy it is when you're a kid that this is just normal. You know, this is just they're using words. That's what I use the same word. That's it. You know, so it's great to see. But and it's also as you say, you do tend to sort of lose it after a little while. But I suppose it'll always be there in some way. They can dig it out again. Um, when I I hear you speaking you don't have the sort of the cut glass Dublin 4 accents that we kind of have come to expect from our ambassadors and our diplomats and that's one of the things I really wanted to talk about Marianne was your own background because you said to me recently look at if, if I can achieve this then pretty much anybody can who are you and where are you from? All right uh, thanks Phil so I'm from Clondalkin which is a, um, a town in West Dublin and um, I yeah, I do agree with that, that, you know, if you put in the work, if you're interested enough, you can get anywhere in life. And that's across any any career, um, I would say. So I grew up in Clondalkin and, and um, there was a question over, it was like when I left school in the late 80s, early 90s, it was a question of what I would do. Um, would I emigrate maybe? Would I go away? Would I go to the States maybe? Um, would I go to college? And I did, um, I was with a group of peer friends and we all did actually go to college. So I went to college and I went to UCD, but there weren't that many, I would say, in my class at that time who who did go on to third level. Um, that was the situation at the time in, in Ireland. And I would say my dad, my late dad, was very encouraging of me going to college. And also um, at the time, uh, it was a fee-paying fee process, so not everyone could afford to go to college. And uh, my, my two older brothers decided uh, they wanted to be musicians and they didn't really want to. They had no interest really in the third level at that point anyway in their lives. So that kind of laid the tracks for me to be allowed to go, for my dad to pay for me to go to college. So I, I, I suppose I have him and my mom to thank a, a lot for that. So I suppose that's, that, that was the starting point. I went to college and then I came out of college and I... Um, Unemployment was quite um, high in the in the 90s. It was 1993 and I, I got a job. I was lucky enough to get a job in the motor tax office. So I was there and I worked there for four years and um, it was you know, issuing tax discs, the driver's license, that type of thing. And then my dad, um, I think I'm pretty sure uh, he's, you know, he was a firefighter and he wanted me to be a firefighter. And I didn't really have much interest in, in, in that type of career. My brother has gone on to be a firefighter, actually, and I have uncles and, and cousins who are firefighters. There's a big thread of firefighters throughout our family but I didn't think that I'd be a brilliant firefighter but he did encourage me to apply for um, the civil service so I applied for an executive officer job in the civil service and I got a job in 
the Department of Justice. And I was there for two years, I think, and I decided, well, maybe, you know, given that I have like a, a degree that I go on and, and I'd, um, I'd look for another kind of promotion opportunity. So I applied for the third secretary, as it's called, junior, junior diplomat in the Department of Foreign Affairs and the equivalent across the civil service. And I was lucky enough to do very well in both competitions and got the interview. And then the decision was, would I leave the civil service, the general civil service, and go into the Department of Foreign Affairs? And I suppose something my mom had always kind of uh, said to me was that you should always travel. If you get the opportunity to travel in life, that you should do that. I'm with your um, mom so, on that one, definitely. Uh, that, so that was, uh, that was the decision made. And um, that was 2001 then. And I haven't actually looked back since. It's been a, an extremely rewarding career. I would say one of the best things about the job, um, Phil, is that um, is that you can you can use your creativity in the role and you can make a difference as well. You know, um, in terms of what we do in our work, there's fascinating work going across uh, going on across Department of Foreign Affairs. And I work with like really amazing people, like the, as you say, very well, highly educated, really dedicated individuals. And I have some brilliant friends there, as uh, I will say. It really is amazing the, the kind of people that you bump into in in foreign affairs in particular because like, there's so many skills needed and we'll get to them in a second but I just wanted to ask you Marianne because Clondalkin for those who don't know is basically a working class area of Dublin right and in the 80s and the 90s it would have been a place that had a reputation as being you know troublemakers living there etc cetera, etc cetera. did the stigma of coming from Clondalkin did that attach itself to you in UCD in any way did you ever feel coming in there that you know that people sort of looked down on you or they thought you know who's this young one coming in here now you know among the sort of you know the people from higher social classes if you want to put it that way yeah it definitely was a feature Phil and like I, I was I was living at home as well so I didn't we didn't have the money for me to live outside and mm. live near the college so yeah you know when you say you're from Clindock and you might actually get a visible reaction from someone that you know they hold their handbag that little bit tighter kind of thing you know <laughs> So, you know, so those are the kind of perceptions that you have to break down. And it's something that I'm always mindful of um, as I've gone through my career that, you know, the inclusion piece, I'm very interested in that. I might come to that actually in, in a little while. But sure. yeah, it's um, yeah, college. So what we found was that um, there was a group of us and um, there was a, my friends from Clendock and who were actually there. So that was a great support network. And then we had a lot of friends from outside Dublin that they were mm. mostly our friends. And also um, a, a group from from the north side as well that uh, we kind of we were fairly tight I have to say and you know in some ways still I will say our biases were as strong as theirs you know that we saw them in a different way as well and and maybe didn't look at them as you know uh, the way we should and try and make friends with them you know there was an element of that but as I got as I went on and I was longer in college and actually I got involved in the drama society there which was a great thing not on the acting but in the production side of things and mm. I got to meet again loads of different people from different backgrounds and I think it changed my attitudes a bit you know that like everyone you know you you'll get on with people irrespective of where they're from and and I think that was really good for me and it's the same then in in the Department of Foreign Affairs. Yeah you kind of have no choice when you're in the situation that you're in if you're posted to somewhere and there's people there there's third secretaries and second secretaries in different places and you're going to meet everybody you know in your current job now from the king who you presented your credentials to the people on the street you know and um, just one last thing on that sort of um, on that aspect of your life right I've never met a firefighter I didn't like they're just the best people in the world I don't know where they where it comes from but they're magnificent people but you didn't really come from a sort of an academic home right and that's often a struggle for for young working class people or for young people 
people who they don't have any anybody to look up to an uncle or an aunt or a parent who's been through third level did you find learning to be a student and learn how to study was that difficult for you or did it come naturally to you yeah, no, it wasn't the easiest, I will admit. I mean, I was always very good in school, but I think in school you have much more guidance. And then you go into college and you're you're kind of left, left off on your own to a large extent. I mean, I, one of my subjects was English and I was in Theatre L um, and there's, I think there's 500 people in my class in first year. But I suppose my love for English um, and my love for literature kind of um, over overrode, I suppose, um, kind of any difficult they I would would have had in you know sitting down to study and I've always been a bit of a crammer um so I think that kind of then stood to me in in the in the days it was my uncle as well my dad's brother he did go through college he was a, an accountant and he used to when we were kids he used to give us um he used to give us money if, if we did well in school so he kind of always had uh, always looked out for us and, as well on the academic side of things and then as I say there was my friend so we would um, make sure that we studied together and, and things like that, you know, go to the library together, make sure we weren't totally, totally dust in, in college. <laughs> so, um, but as I say, the English I loved um, and it just, I suppose, maybe in, in a lot of ways came naturally to me. I'm going to take that love of English now. I'm going to turn it back on you because a couple of minutes ago, you used the word inclusion and I want to know what that word means to you, Marianne. Okay, well, um, maybe I'll just talk a little bit about, if you don't mind, about my last yeah. job in, in foreign affairs as the head of um, the human resources. It was yeah. a, a great job, challenging, especially through COVID. But one of the things that, that I'm probably most proud about is that um, put together an action plan on gender equality, diversity and inclusion. And, and obviously I didn't do this on my own, Phil. I had a great team and people across the department. This is actually something I love about our department. They all get involved. Everyone gets involved and has their say on what they think the department should look like for the future. Well, maybe informed by my own background, I am conscious that our department needs to, if you're representing Ireland abroad, the department needs to look like modern Irish society. So that's mm. that's that's part of the inclusion piece that as diplomats, we go out and represent Ireland and that we are from diverse backgrounds. I think for in terms of inclusion, and I suppose being a, being a, a woman as well, it's, it's not all only about getting into positions of leadership. It's about being included in them. It's about being given the same opportunities in leadership positions that men have, uh, that men occupy, being listened to, um, you know, in meetings, being able to contribute ideas. And I think with women in particular, like that we do maybe lead in different ways and that's okay. It's no less effective and we need to be confident in that. And I suppose the other thing that I'd say about that um, is that I think confidence and competence are always mixed up, that they're seen as being the same thing. And I think we, we'd agree that we've met competent people who we don't maybe view as, as, as competent. But it's also true for the other uh, thing. You can be not competent and be highly competent in your job. And I see, I work with so many brilliant women in my department. Um, and I see, you know, sometimes they second guess themselves and, and I do it myself and it's just something we have to get on with. I think we just have to internalize that we're doing a good job and we'll probably always feel a little bit like that and that we should try not to be, but it doesn't really matter. It shouldn't get in the way either. It's an amazing thing that you're bringing up there because there's a girl who lives down in Malmo and she's thinking about moving up here. And for years, I've sort of championed her, right? And I'm sitting there and I often say to her, if you could only see what I see in you, but she doesn't because that hasn't existed for her. There's no structure in which somebody can, can sort of put, and I don't have the, the resources to pull that out of her. But I hope that Jay's at some point that, that somebody does recognize that in her. And um, just on that very point, when, when you and me are working in a community here like we were in Sweden many years ago, what can I do? 
to make it easier for you and for other women? Is there anything that, you know, we as men do, do we sort of, you know, take over? Do, do, you, do we need to listen? What do we need to do to give more space to people like you to, to, to contribute in the way that you can? Well, I think, you know, I've had lots of um, role models in, in the past, uh, including in department. And I think for men in leadership positions, I think it's just um, given good feedback, I think, because I think that's the thing. If you're if a woman is feeling um, not confident in, in her role and what she's doing, but if she's constantly getting good feedback from her male peers, her male leaders, that gives her, well, that's saying something to, to her. So, so like I'd be saying, well, okay, I'm, did I do that well? And then I'm like, well, hold on a minute. Someone that said I did a brilliant job there. So I should just take that on board and internalize it. So I think that's one thing. And then it's about listening as well. Um, I suppose communications, like everyone in meetings, I think sometimes wants to get their, their point across, but it's to make sure that women are given the space um, to do so. Mm. And yeah. also I will say, Phil, in, in, in the department, and I think one of my, the reasons why um, I have been successful is is because I have again a peer network of uh, women colleagues who are the most supportive people I would meet, as well as my friends from school as well that I continue to be friends with. Like I have networks of women who are hugely amazing and supportive, and I really admire them, and they really admire me, and and that's that's really that's really powerful. I'd say so. That's another thing I would say to to women. You know, find your your networks and make sure you utilize them to the best effect to build your confidence and and your skills. It's fantastic to see. I think I grew up in a time where, you know, women had to sort of give up the civil service if they got married and to see women like yourself and Doreen Burke who's here in Stockholm now, and you know yourself, it's, it's almost unfair to name names because there's so many great women there. Um, what qualities do you need when you're representing Ireland abroad? Because you've done it a few times now and you've gone from being third secretary, second secretary to now being the ambassador. And I suppose, does it vary from role to role or do you have to have a certain set of competencies that you need when you're going to do the job that you do? Yeah, I think there's there's fairly common features around, um, you know, uh, in terms of skill sets that you would need um, to do the job. And I think that one of the first things, and, I, and we touched on it at the beginning, is adaptability. So you need to be able to adapt. You need to be able to go out and um, uh, move to a different country and adapt very quickly, you know, and and, and uh, go get out there and talk with, you know, confidence around issues that you're not maybe sometimes not a, an expert on. So maybe just to give you an example, maybe I'll just talk you through my my, my week last week yeah, um, as ambassador here. So I started the week by um, with a meeting with a member of the royal family to talk about bilateral relationships between Ireland and and Jordan. Um, I also met our far, the foreign minister here, Safadi, um, and again to talk about bilateral what we will do with the bilateral relationship. I'm the second resident ambassador here, we opened our mission in 2019. So there's a lot of interest in building this bilateral relationship and building on a very positive attitude towards Ireland, I would say, here in Jordan. I meet so many people and they absolutely love Ireland. Like they will um, wax lyrical about Ireland when I meet them, which is really nice. So it's building on that. Like I'm pushing open doors, I would say, in, in a lot of ways. And I met three different directors in the ministry on, on different issues, on different political issues. The one was the Middle East peace process, one was Syria, and then one was Ukraine. Um, I did a live breakfast TV show for the first time, terrifying but brilliant, to talk about an initiative we're doing here on young scientists. Um, so we're trying to uh, build STEM skills in youth here. The, I attended and spoke at um, our film festival here during the week for three nights. And again, we'd, we'd members of the Royal Family with us for the first night and we had a great film festival. And um, also then 
met an organisation um, who are dealing with reform issue and we're going to be doing an event later on this month with them, with them on um, Ireland's success story and foreign direct investment and, and the lessons that may be learned there for Jordan. So that's just a snapshot and that's not everything, Phil. They're kind of maybe the, the highlights. So that, that'll show you the level of adaptability and how you have to change in and out. And then I suppose the other thing I would say you really do need is to be able to communicate, to be able to um, speak um, about different issues, but also then to be able to build relationships and very solid relationships with with um, your your stakeholders, with all your contacts, and to be able to deal with people on every level. And I do think my background has helped me in that. You know, uh, kind of going to a school where there was a lot of diversity, and um, you know that 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 kind of was the foundation stone. And I think building my interpersonal skills, I would say, and um, so I've been able to bring them with me all through my life. So which has been very positive. Um, you always have to be up for the adventure. You have to have good judgment as well. You have to know when you need to make a point and when you need to listen. And I think listening in terms of communications, like I think you probably know this yourself, but listening is probably the most important feature of it. You have to really hear what people are saying and internalize it um, rather than, you know, sometimes I'm, I'm guilty of it myself. Sometimes you're thinking of what's your next point rather than actually listening to the person and what they're, what they're saying to you. <laughs> it really is. Listening, is so many of us interpret listening as waiting for my chance to speak. And it's like, no, <laughs> you know, there's so many times when I sat down in an interview like this one and you have, you know, a set, you know, amount of questions or whatever that you want to ask or subjects you want to touch on. And the best ones are the ones where you can just depart from that because somebody says something that they, they want to explore with you, you know, and if you're not listening, you're going to miss that. And I'm sure it's the same, you know, if you're talking to the, the Jordanian or the Saudi royal family as well. And um, we've talked a lot about the role of women about communication. You're in a part of the world, if I can be crass about it, where, you know, maybe women aren't sort of on, on the same level as men. Let's put it that way, right? Do you have any, have you encountered any difficulties just because you're a woman in an ambassadorial role or is it accepted by Jordan uh, that, that you are the ambassador and that's it? No, I haven't had any, I mean, I'm, I'm, it's early days, but I haven't had any, it's only been very positive. And I think if you, if you kind of, if we go back to the things, the access I've had already this week, I'll show that there are no obstacles there in terms of being a woman. I am in a country and actually there's four women in the Middle East. Um, I am in a country where women... Um, and their participation in, in the workplace is, is very low. So there's high levels of graduates here in Jordan, women, but then they tend to go um, into more, you know, they, they wear their families and they don't actually participate in the work, workplace. So, Phil, I suppose I'll use my role here as uh, being a, a role model, but also working on projects where we can build women's empowerment, where we can, um, and as I, as I mentioned, in this project they're working on building STEM, encouraging um, girls in particular. This week uh, we celebrated Day of the Girl, um, encouraging girls to get involved in these type of um, activities as well and the contribution that they can make. But I think girls, uh, young girls need role models as well. They need to. If you can't, if you can't see it, you can't be it. So mm. we, you know, it is uh, it is great to have this position to be able to go out and to talk about. Um, how, where I came from and how I've gotten here um, to be an ambassador of Ireland, which is just an, an amazing achievement. Perhaps the saddest thing about the diplomatic corps from the point of view of somebody who's lived abroad for so long is that there's a there's an end date on everything, right? That at some point, uh, your time in Jordan will come to an end. And I suppose if I want to put a positive spin on that, I have to ask the question, when the list goes around, can you ever see yourself applying for the job or the post of being ambassador to Sweden? 
Well, Phil, I did. I lo I love my time in um, Sweden, and I suppose maybe one of my one of the favorite things. Look, one of the reasons why I chose Sweden was because of you know a very um, it's human rights records, it's uh, the values that it upholds in terms of gender equality, including including that. And I had a young family, very young family at the time. My, my our youngest was a baby when we went to Stockholm, so it was great. It was really brilliant from that perspective. And um, but one of the favorite things uh, my time there was I was waiting on the bus one day. And there was a man in a car who was broken down and the AA truck came along and a woman got out of the AA truck. And it just kind of said everything to me that needs to be said about Sweden in terms of, um, you know, it was just a, a nice picture and kind of uh, summed it up. Love my time there. And obviously I wouldn't rule it out. But in the meantime, I know you have a great ambassador there in Aston Gormley, who was, who was actually my boss in, in New Resources at, at one stage. Um, so, uh, and so do say hello to him for me. But I also get to work with great Swedish colleagues here. I have that opportunity. So there's a great ambassador here, colleagues, Alexandra Ridmark, and she's currently preparing for um, a state visit at the moment. The, the, their Royal Highnesses, the King and Queen, are coming to Jordan um, next month. And she's also opened an embassy, so she's very busy. So I, I haven't seen an awful lot of her, but I hope to do that post her visit um, when, she, when she has a bit more time. If you were to sum up your career, Marianne, into like one piece of advice for anybody listening to this anywhere around the world, if you have a young person, a young woman, a young man who wants to get involved in diplomacy and foreign affairs and representing Ireland abroad, what's the first step towards doing that? Is it like you, where you go into the motor tax office and you start at the very bottom? Can they, you know, can they squiddle their way in somewhere in the middle? What's the best way to go about doing it, would you say? Yeah, I mean, I think they're looking, the public appointment service is looking at different models now, but the model at the moment, it is a graduate entry at the moment exclusively. So you would have to have a primary degree to get in. So I think I would encourage, I mean, I think education is never wasted and you do learn lots of things um, through education. So I'd encourage um, young young girls and boys to, to, you know, look and go to college and get an education. Pick something that you're interested in, that you think you could make a career of. And then if you're really interested, there's loads of courses now available in Ireland, including international relations um, that you can study if you really are passionate about joining the Department of Foreign Affairs. You don't have to do those courses, but it, it is there are a lot of people in the department who have that type of background now, especially the younger, the younger um, colleagues coming through. So go to college and then apply, make the application and, um, you know, every, look out for the opportunities um, online when they come up. It's really um it's such a rewarding career I'd, I'd recommend it to anyone and um and I, I i am honest with that if i can do it anyone can you need to be able you gen genuinely need to be able to do and uh, to, to work hard and to be very committed and um, there's long hours sometimes but it's all generally you know it's always very rewarding and there's a lot of fun to be had along the way as well and uh, so so again just uh, would really encourage someone to to, to think about this career and also, as I said, we're trying to build a more diverse uh, department. So maybe a message to those who um, don't see maybe that they, they're, you know, they, they, they're maybe newer in the country or their parents are newer in Ireland. You know, please do join up and, and uh, make the application. We'd, lo we'd love to see you in the department. We'd love to have you. I'm just so proud that somebody like you represents our country abroad and thank you so much for speaking to me and who knows one day maybe we might get to do the Global Gale podcast down in Amman in Jordan but for now Marianne Bolger thanks so much for talking to me Thank you Phil great to talk to you Yes Bernard but it's simply too dangerous to let politicians become involved with diplomacy Diplomacy is about surviving until the next century 
Politics is about surviving until Friday afternoon. <laughs> 157 independent countries in the world. We've dealt with them for years. There's hardly an MP who knows anything about any of them. Show them a map of the world. Most of them have a job finding the Isle of Wight. Surely <laughs> politicians can't be that ignorant. Very <laughs> <laughs> well, sit down. There you go, a little clip from the classic British comedy series Yes Minister and what later went on to become Yes Prime Minister about diplomacy. And of course, uh, that refers to our friends across the water there in London. Our Irish politicians are obviously so much more competent than that and know so much more about the world thanks to the likes of the wonderful Marianne Bulger. And if you don't have a relationship with your local Irish embassy uh, or your local consulate, it's well worth looking into because um, there are some amazing people working there and as I mentioned earlier, doing some amazing work and Marianne's an extremely impressive person altogether and I secretly hope that wherever I wind up living the rest of my life that she's somewhere not too far away because she's very, very competent and uh, just a really nice person to talk to. So I really hope that you enjoyed that. Right, the way we're going to make this podcast work over time, lads, is that either you're sitting there, right, and you're running a big airline or a big hotel chain or a big business and you want to sponsor this show, right? Mail philip at ablana.se if that's the case, right? I will happily relieve you of your millions to try to keep the lights on here in the Stockholm studio that produces the Global Gale podcast and a few other ones, right? So all the podcasts come out on the same feed and the feed is called Arrowman in Stockholm. Patreon.com forward slash Arrowman in Stockholm is where you can support this podcast and all the other stuff that i do i'm hoping that this is going to be a once a week podcast we have the irish and sweden podcast for the local community here our man in stockholm which is about media and politics as seen from stockholm and then i do a podcast about soccer called premier swedes there may well be more podcasts who knows but it really depends on you being able to support the podcast and as i've mentioned many times before everything is free right i put it all out there i don't put a barrier to anybody being there because it's i just don't want to do that that's not who i want to be but i would hope that anybody who has the price of a pint over or a price for a cup of coffee over every month could happily contribute it because uh, it just makes it so much easier you know it does cost uh, both time and money and resources and microphones and everything else to produce the content so it'd be absolutely great the more people that can get behind this uh, the more time i'll have to do it the better we can all make it together now as i mentioned earlier i'm gonna spoil you in the first episode lads right gonna spoil you gotta give away the farm here completely right so when i was putting this first episode together for you i really wanted to give you really different experiences of Irishness, right? And Marianne is one version of it, you know, somebody who's sent out to represent us abroad, a really noble calling that she has undertaken, uh, even if it is in a temporary two, three years here and there in different places. But then at the other end of the scale, I wanted to talk to somebody of Irish heritage, right? Maybe somebody who wasn't born in Ireland or grew up in Ireland the way many of us did, and just to get their take on it. And I ended up landing on somebody that uh, has been a sort of a bit of an influence on, on me, both as, as a journalist and as as a sports fan, right? So, um, there's no more Irish city, perhaps, outside of our island uh, than the city of Boston. And I'd be a big fan of the Boston Celtics as I'm sitting here. You may have seen in the video uh, or some of the videos that I put out here, there's a Larry Bird jersey. He was a famous old uh, Boston basketball player. Uh, obsessed with that team. Have been since the 1980s. So I wanted to speak to somebody from the Boston area, both about sports there and what sports mean and what Irishness means in Boston as well. For those of us who grew up in the 80s, we all had family there. It was like, you know, it was like the 33rd County. Uh, 
Um, but it was somewhere that I've never lived. I've been there to visit and I've seen basketball there. So I got in touch with Dan Shaughnessy. Dan is a sports columnist going back the best part of 40 years with the Boston Globe newspaper. He grew up in a very small town that we talked about, a little bit northwest of, uh, of Boston. And amazingly, as he tells us, he really wasn't aware, despite his surname being Shaughnessy, of his Irish heritage until he went to college, right? So we'll flip the switch a little bit. We'll go from Marianne Bulger's experience as an Irish diplomat, spending every minute of every waking minute representing Ireland to somebody who wasn't quite that aware of it until he turned 18 or 19 and went to college there in Boston. So here's the chat I had with Dan Shaughnessy about Boston, about being Irish, about realising that relatively late in life, I suppose, and about what sports and the Boston Celtics mean to the Irish community on the East Coast of America. Dan, you grew up in Groton in Massachusetts, which is sort of northwest of Boston. How aware would you have been of your Irish heritage at that time? It's a, it's an interesting question, Phil. Um, I was very not at all aware. I mean, again, the, the town I grew up in uh, is, is, is a large Episcopal population. Uh, no diversity, no Jewish people, no black people. It was 4,000 people. It was very small. It's about 40 miles northwest of Boston. Um, I didn't even know I was Irish until I went to Holy Cross. I went to Jesuit College, but that was, I was 18 by then, but it was just not an identity uh, growing up. And, and my father, I think that the, the Shaughnessy's came over from the Galway area around the 1860s or something like that. Uh, they were Cambridge folks. And my father certainly grew up with that. Uh, and my mother was was half Irish as well. So, and I I always looked very Irish, but it just wasn't a a, a part of the culture. Uh, growing up was not reinforced. It wasn't something I, I figured out. Then when I got to Holy Cross College, where so many guys had gone to all Catholic high schools, and it was a small college, uh, great Jesuit priests, and um, the identity there. Um, you know, the culture of, of having beers on Friday and Saturday nights and the whole thing that that became part of my new identity. And I associated it with that very much after that. And and then breaking into the job market in Boston, there were a lot of old Irish guys, American Irish, you know, but with the same, you know, Ray Fitzgerald and Lee Montville and uh, Bob Monahan and just the names. And I think that they they felt a a kindred spirit with my name, Dan Shaughnessy. And and I think I was treated a little more carefully and, and better than I might've been had I not been had that, but it, it was not something I saw as an advantage or an identity until I got to college. It's an interesting one because of the region that you grew up in there. And of course, Holy Cross being this famous Jesuit college. Um, how did you experience Boston? When you moved from Groton, which you said 40 miles northwest there, you moved towards Boston, which very much for us on the outside has an identity as an Irish city. Did you find Boston to be very Irish when you were a yes. young man hanging out there? Yes. Had I grown up in Dorchester or South Boston, certainly it would have been a totally different deal altogether. And, you know, the parish would have been more a part of daily life. But the, in, in Groton, the parish was, again, there were so few Catholics there. It just it just wasn't a big factor. There were only a handful of us. So mm -hmm. most of my friends were Protestant. And um, in those days, you know, we, we couldn't go in their churches. It was a very kind of cloistered thing. It was just careful. Um, mm -hmm. but, but I just didn't have, uh, 
a great sense of kinship or uh, mm. commonality with the people that I grew up with. It's just such a small town. And even though it was only 40 miles from Boston, it, it was country and it did not connect with the Irish Catholic population of Boston. We didn't connect with that. At college I did. And then I, I moved right to Brighton, Massachusetts, very, which is, which is part of Boston after college. And again, at that point, you know, you're going to the Irish pubs and, you know, all the girls are Mary Ellen and Mary Helen and the whole thing. Mm. So it was just like, uh, th that felt like home. Mm. Um, one person who sort of realized the value of the Irish heritage in, in Boston was Red Auerbach, who started or was very much instrumental in the Boston Celtics in the beginning. And then, you know, from the club was founded in 1946. So that was obviously a play on that. Was basketball a big sport for the Irish community in Boston at that time? No, I mean, certainly hockey would have been far, ice hockey would have been by far the, the sport of choice uh, for the Irish Catholic families. Uh, the basketball thing took hold late. Red fought that when he became part of the Celtics in 1950, the hockey population in the Boston Garden was owned by the Boston Bruins hockey team. So the Celtics were tenants. He felt they were second class citizens, that the, the Irish ticket holders would always push the hockey tickets if people came to the box office and say, uh, you don't want to see the Celtics, you want to see the hockey. And, <laughs> and Red resented that. And, uh, and it took a while. And even with all the winning that they did, it really, it didn't take hold in a big way until the Larry Bird, Kevin McHale, Robert Parrish, those guys in the 80s, it became a sellout every game. And so for all the winning they were doing when I was a child in the 60s, they still, they were more globally famous <clears throat> than they were in a, in the community. The, the Red Sox were still, the baseball team was the big team that people talked about, even though they were not successful. Was was baseball a big thing among the Irish community there in in the city? Because I mean, uh, hockey. I still find it weird that Irish people were so interested in hockey because it's not something like I live in Sweden, so everybody's big into hockey here, obviously. But baseball was was something that Irish people embraced there as well, was it? I think that if you were in in the city of Boston, whether you were a firefighter or a cop or a construction guy or school teacher, the socks were just part of the culture. So I don't know that it was. And, you know, the, the priest would talk about them in mass sometimes. They were just, they were the fabric of the culture. I think much the way the European football is in the culture, mm. you know, across the pond. It's just, even if you're not interested, you can't escape it. It's just part of the culture. And baseball was part of that culture. I don't know that, I mean, a lot of the sports writers and commentators were certainly of Irish American heritage. Not that many of the players, but I think when they when they would have one, it was, the name would be popular. It was the same thing with the Italian culture. Like DiMaggio was wildly popular because he was Italian. So all in New York, they all loved DiMaggio because he was Italian. And we had that when Rico Petroselli became a Red Sox player. Now you didn't have a lot of Irish last names on on the Sox because those those players are mostly coming from Texas and California and and you know warmer climates. And uh, we didn't have a, a great deal of uh, players with with the last names at that time. Um, your own career, Dan, you're one of the most respected sports writers and you're somebody that I've loved reading for, for a long, long time. Uh, you were a, mostly a baseball guy to begin with. You were obsessed with statistics, but also with the craft of writing. Where did that love of writing come from for you? Well, I get that from the Shaughnessy's. My father, uh, he was a very smart man. He went to Boston College High School. He went to Boston College in the 30s. Um, and he was of the Boston Irish culture. He grew up in Cambridge, but you know, Tip O'Neill, the wonderful speaker of the house, they were classmates and, and he just had that. And he, he was extremely bright 
and he would listen to the games and he would crit criticize the commentators if they were not using correct uh, grammar. And uh, I would learn how to edit by standing over his shoulder while I, he'd read my homework assignments and do some line editing with the pencil. And I just saw the craft of that. And uh, he loved words and uh, it, learning new words was always critical for me. And I was more like him than my, I had four siblings and they were all older, but he kind of, he appreciated that I loved words and I loved reading. And so the sports thing became what I was interested in. So I did my best and most, you know, connected reading of that material. And, and uh, it became something that we would watch the baseball games together and he wasn't much of an athlete, but he appreciated that I had an interest in something and could apply the reading and writing skills to that. And then when I got to Holy Cross College, again, the, the Jesuit training of the independent thinking and uh, just the structure of, of, of writing at that time, you know, we, we would study, you know, Joyce and Shakespeare, and we had the scholars for that. And I think that the storytelling became something that I, I realized was, you know, contributions to to humanity from from my people storytelling is a big one i mean mm. clearly just the writers and the storytelling and and the charm and the energy just i'm a good storyteller now i do that in the books and um you know my children get tired of the same old stories all the time so i, I do that old guy thing for sure but uh i do love connecting with other people and just telling stories and especially if there's young people with fresh ears they haven't heard the stories it's always nice to have uh new new people to to drop them on and i have a very good memory but really at holy cross was when i kind of realized this this gift of telling stories because i don't consider myself particularly bright i'm not good at very many things but i can tell stories and i have a good memory so the few skills that i have apply to this this particular craft and i've been very fortunate in that in that aspect there's one of the stories that I want you to tell uh, the listeners to the Global Gale podcast, and that is how you were nicknamed by the Boston Celtics team in the early 80s. They gave you the nickname Shank, and I have an idea that has something to do with your independent thinking and the fact that you wouldn't be told what to do. But tell, tell the listeners how you managed to get that nickname. Well, I, I was new on the on the covering the team and they were they were already champions when I got there and they were they were all secure in their own greatness. There was a lot of uh, free spirits and just wildly talented basketball players who were also smart and engaging and fun. And uh, I was not to be trusted. And I, I, I wasn't, I was on board. I would not cover things up or, or if I discovered friction or any kind of edginess, I would take that to the readers. Like this guy doesn't like this guy, or they don't like the coach or uh, this guy's got in a barroom fight. He's in trouble. And, and so I was not on board covering up any little transgressions and that was considered not loyal or whatever. And I, I'm independent, man. I'm, I'm here serving my readers and my newspaper, not you guys. So, and that Larry Bird would seize upon that. And, you know, I'd walk into the locker room and he'd say, you notice how quiet it gets and you walk in here. You know? <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, it's okay. I understand that, you know? So, but it, it, it got better and, and it became kind of a source of, of just, I think uh, good natured ribbing. And I, I think ultimately they respected that a little bit more that mm. I couldn't be bought off or corrupted or, or used as, as a tool to hide the flaws. I was just going to tell the readers what was going on, mm. you know, within limits, you're not going to unnecessarily hurt people, but if, if, if it affected the team, 
then that was fair game. So yeah, I it it worked out pretty well. So Scoop was a nickname, Shank was a nickname, many colorful nicknames in subsequent years. I'm sure you prefer to be called Scoop than Shank because yes, that's our yeah, prison connotation. More, del- more delicate and, and convivial, yeah. There was a time, Dan, when I started to watch basketball, or watch basketball, there was no such thing on TV in Europe at that time. But I knew about the Celtics, I knew about Larry Bird, and we knew about Magic Johnson. And we would see maybe three to five minutes of highlights, you know, on the TV. And we used to go into the city in Dublin and read the USA Today newspaper. And sometimes, you know, we'd find other newspapers like the Boston Globe. What was it like to cover the NBA at that time? Because you had a very short stint there. You're much better known in America as a baseball writer. But that was really, you know, the sort of the the modern uh, scale or the epic scale of the NBA sort of came from that time. What was it like to be around that? Well, it's a very good observation. And, you know, this is a long time ago, but when I came on to cover the sport, the finals were not on national TV. It was kind of a second tier, second class sport in America. Um, the Boston Celtics were pretty globally famous because Red had taken them abroad when they were in their heyday in the 50s and 60s, trying to spread the word. And of course, it's a game like soccer. You can play anywhere. But... Um, it just didn't take on like American football or baseball. The, those were the popular games. But in the 80s, um, when Bird and Magic came to the league and they started to play one another, it became like an Ali Frazier kind of thing for that sport. It was must-see television. And uh, they had a great commissioner come on board, David Stern. He was a visionary. And, and then Michael Jordan was drafted into the league. Is a super talent. And branding and sneakers and sponsorship and global entity – and by 1992, they have the dream team goes to the Olympics and is just this, this really global sensation and uh, known around the world. You know, teams wanted to take their pictures with the dream team instead of compete with them. So we had all that and then it just took off from there. And now with, with, with social media and the Internet, they connect very well with their fans. It's a game that is played and you've got international players coming to the States and, and thriving at the highest levels. I think that's good for the global uh, part of the sport. So yeah, it's uh, it's really worked. It's it's way bigger than it was when I took off. But that's why I felt I was lucky to to be kind of in the early the pioneer days of it when we got close to the athletes and we could really tell our readers what they were like because we were flying commercial flights with them, waiting for bags with them, being in hotel lobbies, hotel bars, and uh, we were really able to tell the readers, the fans, what they were like. And that's impossible to do now. You can't get that close anymore. There's a big moat of separation flying charter, five-star hotels, and never the twain shall meet. There's just a big separation. It's nobody's fault. It's just the way things have evolved. Mm. It's still amazing, though, the level of access that you can get in America compared to, like, soccer players in Europe. Because, you know, I've walked in, I've mentioned to you, I was at the Boston Garden and talking to LeBron James in his underwear, you know, would never happen here. Um <laughs> One of the things I want to ask you, Dan, because there is a darker side to the Irish experience in Boston that I wanted to to explore with you just a little bit. Uh, Bill Russell, who passed away not too long ago, the greatest winner in all of American sports, one of the greatest Americans ever. He wasn't that well treated, unfortunately, by the Irish community in Boston or by the community in Boston in general. He was subjected to a lot of of racism there. Um, How has the city dealt with him, his legacy and, and their part in that whole thing? You know, it, it never goes away. I, I think that uh, Boston, because of its is being as old as it is and uh, very tribal and provincial and small. And so you had this dynamic, certainly when I was born in the 50s and moving to Boston in the early 60s, in the early 70s, I should say. But um, 
everybody, the, the Italian section was here and the Irish section was here and the black section was here. There wasn't a lot of commingling and the black section was very small. The Irish section was big and uh, the parish life became kind of the focal point for the Irish families and the schools, the parochial schools, the Catholic schools. And um, there was a, uh, forced segregation of schools in the 70s, which was reflected very poorly on Boston, where a lot of pushback from the parents. They got a school across the street and they can't have their kid go there. They got to put them on a bus and go to the black community and vice versa. And it was just, it wasn't received well. And it, it the city was very, uh, it, was a, it was a big black eye for the city, just the way things went down. And Russell came into the city in the 50s. He He grew up in a much more, casual i think open-minded area in the west coast of of america the the northern west coast and people were just cooler out there and had kind of didn't matter as much it sorted through it a lot better with with racial issues so we were still holding on to this these old values and stuff that people's parents and grandparents were saying and and it, it didn't reflect well and russell yeah he got people breaking into his house and doing mean things and and he felt the team didn't draw as well as it should have given how much they were winning and the sport wasn't as popular and why are people caring about baseball and hockey and we got this championship team and so i mean i understand it it could not have been a comfortable place and it's still we don't have as much diversity as other parts of our country or certainly around the world if you're a black man you stand out more here than maybe you'd like to you know it's like too much the exception so it's something the city's had to get past i think it's a far more comfortable place to be a black man here now, but I'm not black, so I can't really speak to that. But, and you know, anytime you have an episode of Kyrie Irving says, Oh, they threw a bottle at me because I'm black, you know, mm. you can't fight that. If you fight that too hard, it just makes it worse. So, um, I think that overall, I, I think it's we've done far better, but the image stays there, as you know, and you, you don't you don't clean that image overnight or by saying everything's cool now, that just doesn't work. It takes generations, I suppose. Yeah. When you look at the city of Boston today, when you're on your way to, to Fenway Park or, or to the Boston Garden, the TD Garden, as it's known now, who do you see in the bleachers there? Who do you see going to games? Is it still an Irish community or is it much more diverse now? Well, it's a good question, Phil. I, I think that uh, at Fenway, there's just not enough dark faces there. There's not enough diversity in that crowd. You know, the baseball crowd is still very white. Now, the garden crowd definitely has, well, it's always had a larger Jewish population. Red Auerbach kind of cultivated that back to the 50s. Um, and the black population is much more significant at a Celtic game than you would see. So I think that you're more comfortable there than you would be at Fenway. I still think Fenway is, a, I don't know, it's just has never really caught on with the black community there. And uh, it's, it, it strikes me as, as too white and you don't see a lot of faces. So if you're if you're a black Red Sox player, you're like, there's no one looks like me in the crowd here mm. at Celtics. That's, that's not an issue anymore. I think, you know, it's, this team is really supported by everyone. They're popular. It's expensive as is hot. They all are, but uh, I don't know how people can afford this anybody, but uh, yeah, there's certainly a lot more uh, dark faces in the crowd at a basketball game than there used to be. Mm. Um, your own Irish heritage, Dan, is that and something that you sort of explored? Did you ever go back to Galway and try to trace the roots of, of your father's family and, and your mother's family? Not in a big way. I mean, I've been there like three times. It's been a while. And Galway, I love the West Coast, you know, you know, Sligo and Connemara. And just, you know, I was I enjoyed that part of the country. And it's, it, of course, it's so beautiful and the stone walls and the green. 
but uh, it's been over 20 years since I was there. All my children have visited and I, I do, I do need to get back. And, and that was a place where I just, everybody was so friendly and it felt like they still loved Americans. I hope they still do because nobody else does. <laughs> <laughs> there was a guy in the White House there for a while who might have pissed a few people off, but I think I think you're still welcome there, you know? <laughs> um, if, if you look around at, at Boston today, because one of the things that you, Irish people tend to bring their games with them wherever they go, even if they adopt hockey in Boston, did you have any experience of Gaelic games, of Gaelic football and hurling in, in your work as a reporter? A guy just gave me a hurling stick last week. I was at his bar. It's there you go. <laughs> and I've got it downstairs. I'm gonna. My son's fighting me for it. He wants it. But my son, when he was in Ireland, he he went to the hurling. He loved it, and he's a baseball player. And but no, I, I confess, I'm the worst. I don't have. I've not expanded my horizons and mind. And I, it's it's like reading Joyce. It's too hard for me. Yes, you and me both. I'm making yet another attempt to read Ulysses at the moment, and I'm glad that a man as clever as yourself is struggling just as much as I am. Uh, Dan, you've had an extremely long career there, much of it spent at the Boston Globe, the biggest newspaper there. You're one of the best, most respected, but also occasionally polarizing figures there. What do you want to do in your career now? Because you're, I believe you're an associate editor there at the Boston Globe as well. Is it just to keep writing columns and annoying people every time the Red Sox play? Or what would you like to do in what remains of your career? Yeah, I'm 69 years old. I've been doing the same thing for a lot of years. Uh, I, I feel very blessed that I get to read and, and write and talk about sports and get paid for it. Get to, you know, put kids through college and support my family that's a real blessing it's like god bless america that i i get to do that so i feel very blessed um and yeah this is not it's not the 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 opinions that we put forth they, they don't change people's lives the way politics or religion or all the real sensitive things do this is just fun it's it's leisure activity and and i have fun with it my opinions are real they're not agenda driven they're not to provoke they just are what they are and and it's it's sports. We should be able to disagree about Bill Belichick and and still go have a beer and be friends because it's sports. So I I enjoy it, and uh, I would be bored not doing it. And I will uh, as long as I'll check my phone when the interview's over and see if I'm still employed. But as long as they keep it going, yes, I I expect to to keep it going on my end. Yeah, hanging in there. At the time we're talking now, the NBA season is just about to begin. Do you go to Fenway and the Garden and to to watch American football? Is that what you do every day these days? Not as much as I used to. I mean, when you're covering the beat in the old days with the baseball or the Celtics, it was just your life. You just, you were always with them. Uh, as a columnist, not quite as much. And now with post-pandemic and being older, I am going to Cleveland this weekend to see the Patriots. And I'll be at the Garden on Tuesday when the Celtics open with the Sixers. So it's important to stay out there, you know, interact with, with the people. You know, anybody who's mad at you gets run at you. You should be around if you're going to criticize and and I, I like to be around and you learn things. It's just better. Uh, I've gotten a little lazier in my old age to do more watching TV and opinions, but I, I know what it smells like and tastes like in all these places. And, and I can pull that off, but I still, you need to get out there. I encourage all the young people that want to break into our business, get out of the house, get out of your house, talk to people, tell us what's around you, describe that, explain that. Don't just watch TV and have opinions. That's where the magic happens is down at the training grounds and in the locker rooms and that kind of thing. One last thing, the great storyteller that you are. I, I just want to hear the best story that you have from your time covering the Celtics. If you had to pick one anecdote, what would that be? Well, I'll I'll do it as so Larry Bird, I played high school basketball, you know, badly, but I could make foul shots. And Larry had gotten a barroom fight and his hand was was messed up at the playoffs in 85. 
and he was taping it. His hand was like taped like that in practice. So after practice, I said, you can't, you can't play with tape like that in your hand. The game tomorrow night is playoff game with the Sixers. He said, he said, scoop, I could tape my whole hand and make more shots than you. And, and then it was like a pool hall kind of thing. He had this set up. He's $5 a free throw, a hundred free throws. I'll tape my hand like this. We'll see who can shoot free throws with tape in her hand. And, and, uh, we both, he taped his hand like that and I shot normal and we did rounds of 10 and started off pretty fair. Each made six out of 10 and then he figured it out and he did, he was pushing him through. Everyone was going in and I started choking him, seeing $5 bills flying through the air and letting go. And so he took me for $160 and, uh, <laughs> and, uh, he played, I gave it to him the next night. He gave me twenties. He stuffed it in his shoe. He played with my money in his shoe. And, and, uh, that was, uh, that was an unfortunate day there, but it was a fun time. I can imagine uh, telling your wife that story mustn't have been one of the high points of your career, was it? No, and telling the boss, I said, can I expense this? Can I put this <laughs> on the expense account? <laughs> it's the kind of thing you do once, but uh, you learn your lesson after that. Dan, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. If people want to find you on social media, that kind of thing, and argue the toss over the Red Sox, where can they do that? Yeah, so on Twitter, it's Dan underscore Shaughnessy on Twitter. I know I have that, and... um Email is dshaughnessy at globe.com. So if anybody has any opinions they want to share on the Red Sox or anything else to do with Boston Sports, or just want to give you the praise you deserve for this great career, they can find you there. Dan, thank you so much for talking to me. Thank you, Philip. I enjoyed it. Take care. They call it the other way. And now that's a steal by Murph. Underneath the DJ lane. Some great commentary there from one of the great nights in the Boston Garden. Uh, Larry Bird stealing an inbounds pass and passing it to Dennis Johnson. I grew up uh, idolising these fellas as a fairly tall fellow myself and playing basketball. That's nearly it for the first episode of the Global Gale podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, let me know. If you didn't, let me know. But try to do so quietly. We're trying to get as many as possible to listen to it. Um, again patreon.com forward slash arrowman in Stockholm if you want to support it or if you have a business that you want to give uh, support, sponsor this for several several million euros a year I, I won't turn you down lads I, w- I will definitely hear you out in that case uh, it's been an absolute pleasure bringing it to you and again remember get in touch okay I want to hear all the stories from the four corners of the world that's what the podcast is here for because I really want to create something it's not a podcast made by me but it's a podcast shared by all of us and I want you to feel like a part of this conversation as well so if you have any ideas aren't you said any news you want to share get on to me and i shall do my best to include it right so in the meantime now i want you to look after ourselves and one another and uh, i'll be back again hopefully in about a week's time with another episode i have another couple of great guests lined up that i'll bring to you some very creative people that i'll be bringing to you next week on the next episode of the global gale good luck (laughs) 